Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Metsville. Uh, and this is the episode number 12 of the Metsian podcast. I got the keys to the car tonight, so my name is Michael Cullen. I'm driving. Uh, you can catch my stick at the Brooklyn Trolley Blogger at Blogspot. And now that my shameless plug out of the way, uh, let me bring in my fellow friends and co-hosts. Uh, Rich, say hello. Good evening, Mike. Good evening, Sam. Good evening, everyone. And Sam, say hello. Rich said it best for me. There's nothing else to say right now. Good evening. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, everyone's feeling pretty somber. That's pretty cool. Look, uh, what's there to say? Uh, the, the Mets are in a bad way right now. Uh, Sam, you happen to be in Denver, Colorado. Uh, the Mets just lost three out of four games against the Rockies. Today they grounded into five double plays. Uh, pretty ponderous. Sam, uh, before we get into all that, let's start off on a positive note. What are your impressions of Coors Field? Coors Field's fantastic. What's beautiful about Coors Field, and, and mind you, I guess they say about Camden that Camden was really the first of the retro ballparks. You know, I think it was 93. Um, and I've been to Camden, but right now Coors Field has generally been leaving a better impression on me, uh, especially because it's it, it basically does everything that City Field tries to do better, except it's uh, uh, 14 years older than than, court, than uh, City Field. So I think that you, you can see how derivative City Field was trying to be, and for better or worse, I think that, and, and you know, similar to what the Wilpons do, they take their cues but don't exactly – uh, uh, follow through those with those cues uh, like the rest of the league does. Um, and, and so, so Coors Field, I really love it from from a, a, a ballpark perspective, but I hate how it plays. Today was okay, other than the Mets losing. Today was like a normal baseball game, where it was like, up, oh, oh, can we try to make a comeback? No, we're not going to. But like I, I'm, I'm getting really sick of the quintessential back and forth course field games, and I'm not sure how you guys are feeling. But it, like last night, it's just like, um, I, you know, I, whether it be the uh, uh, opponent coming into course field or just how adept, adept uh, they, um, the the Rockies are at swinging in the, that ballpark, I just can't take the back and forth anymore. I mean, this is literally, it's just 25 years of the same type of game every single time, it feels like. Anyway, 
that's my take uh, on it. I love it. It's my favorite. It's my favorite ballpark, but I hate the way it plays. With you on that, uh, Rich, I, I got stuck in the thought. Yeah, take it away, Rich. Yeah, so I went to Coors Field. Um, it was the 2005 season, you know, so it, it was still new at that point, uh, fairly new anyway. And my initial reaction was, you know, it, it's a nice – it has that older feel, like Sam was talking about, the retro feel. Um, and then my what, what stays with me to this day is the view of the mountains in the background is great. And then the one thing that um, that other ballparks I've been to offer, and I love City Field, but the one thing that these other ballparks have is – it's a it's walkable like you know you could you could walk there from downtown denver um there's an area around it where there are bars and restaurants and stuff like that so that's the one thing we don't have at city field is it's not in a in an area conducive to the party the atmosphere all that's there is city field beautiful as it is so coors field i would say you know, it is on a par with City Field in terms of stadium beauty and amenities and sight lines and all that. But then everything else tips in Coors Field's favor, you know, from the view of the mountains to the location and, and the fact, um, you know, that, that it's fairly close to downtown. And and there's an area there where you could spend a little bit of time and enjoy yourself. It's more than just a baseball game. It's an event. And it's – could you imagine if we had that – um, how much how much better that would be if you went to the ballpark and, and you could get there a couple hours early and sit outside, have some food, and after the game have a couple of beers in that in the area and just feel comfortable and and just be in a nice area. You know, for people who haven't done the ballpark tour, so many ballparks are like that. There are so few that are in an area that, you know, is not walkable from a main area. And secondly, not inhabited by other establishments. It's City Field and Yankee Stadium pretty unique in that regard. Um, so uh, that that's that's a main thing in Coors Field's favor, and uh, and just the natural beauty of Colorado. Uh, I think part of that is uniquely a New York City problem. Uh, you go through history; it's always been a problem here for every team. Uh, you know, getting and, that um, unique. May I? May I uh... May I interject, though? Um, you know, I was in the upper deck today, uh, this morning, and obviously Colorado's prettier than looking out on, on the Bay of Queens, uh, um, uh, the Flushing Bay. Uh, sure, and you can see the mountains from, from the right field upper deck. It's, it's glorious. But really, there, there are in some fashion similar features going on. There's a highway behind there. There's a bunch of apartment buildings. Uh, you can you can kind of see for for on and on. I think what the Rockies did better, uh, Rich, was implement that view. I think I think that like the fact that there's this major scoreboard blocking the the Flushing Bay view is a big detriment to to City Field. And I always say so, somewhat that had they put Pepsi, had they put the the Coca Cola porch or whatever you want to call it this year sponsorship uh, is is. If they had put it in, in left field, I think it just would have been – the whole thing would have played better. 
you know, I like the, the view of flushing, but I just think they should have, instead of thinking that they had stuff to, to block, I think they should have uh, played better into the environment. You know, it, it just feels as if that they're ashamed as to exactly where they are. It's, it's like there's, there's something weird about the way the Wilpons, who want to keep the team, seem to feel ashamed about certain parts of the team and its environment. Weird. Uh, how far exactly is the rock pile? <laughs> is it? I mean, is it worthwhile watching a game from there? It's a it's a great question since I was there last night. <clears throat> yes and no. I don't think it's it's you know you can see the the view uh, you can see the field pretty well and and the players. Sometimes I have to look up to to see the. Uh, exactly who was actually batting. I didn't. I couldn't necessarily tell from from the rock pile. Uh, they also, you know, I think just from a, a logistical standpoint, some of the they, they need to kind of make this the scoreboard uh, uh, font a little bigger for the people out there. Um, and and they're also right next to that new scoreboard, which you can't see at all. So that's kind of moot. Uh, uh, but is, is, is it worth it for eight bucks? Yeah, it's worth it. Uh, I'll admit, you know, from what I've seen on it, of it on, on TV, inside and out, it's a beautiful ballpark. But, Sam, I'm with you. I don't like the way games play out there. Uh, so let's just move on to the games themselves. Uh, again, just to reiterate, we did lose four, uh, three out of four against the Rockies. And they're grounded into five double plays. At least they're hitting the ball uh, a little bit more than they have been lately. Uh, here's some numbers for you guys to uh, – play with. Uh, the Mets have lost 15 out of their last 19 games and 22 out of their last 29 games. You know, pick your poison. Uh, they're 20 and 39 since starting the season 11 and 1. And they own a, a 31 and 41 record overall, 10 games below 500. Rich, how does that make you feel? It's only June 1st. It's the first day, uh, excuse me, the first day of summer. Uh, and how does that make you feel? Um, it's a kick in the teeth. Uh, it really is. Um, if the team had started off badly and just progressed in that in that way, then you'd say to yourself, "It's a bad year." You know, let's see what um, what they're going to do with the deadline and that kind of thing. But but for me, I, I was I think I've said this on this podcast before. I was sucked in by the hot start. I really was. Um, I really thought that the team could be something special. You know, whether or not. Winning the World Series, who knows, but something like a give us a nice ride through the summer. And being 10 games below 500 is bad enough. But when you got there by being 10 games over 500 and the season is not even half over yet and you've done that kind of a nosedive, it, it's, it's, almost like, it's almost like being teased. You know, it's kind of like that's just unfair. Don't do that to me. It's like, um, you know, it's like if you're a thirsty man and somebody shows you a glass of water and it's just outside of your reach. I mean, that is so unfair to do to the fan base to build us up like that and then just completely nosedive like this. Um, so the way it makes me feel, Mike, to answer your question is kind of like I've been punched in the gut. You know, I mean, I buy my season tickets every year and, um, you know, I, I have all these games to go to still. And, and, yes, I'll go. And, yes, it'll be okay. But... I expected a lot more after the hot start. I mean, I expected to be there for, you know, to use a term that we all love and love, and I say that sarcastically. I thought I was going to be there for meaningful games in September, and now it's just 
The only thing we're really looking at is what direction will the front office take? Who will they sell off? And this is two years in a row of this, and um, and it's coming off of a very short period of being good. You know, rebuild, tiny, tiny window of competitiveness. Now two years in a row of, of let's see who we could sell today. And um, and again, it's just and coming off the hot start, it just it feels terrible to me. It really does. You know what? Great point. It really is amazing. Uh, we just went through a rebuild, and it's ponderous. They were actually contemplating that once again. Sam, how do you feel about this all? You know, I, we lost over 90 games last year. So how do you feel about this? Because I actually thought we'd be uh, contending at least for the second wild card spot, and here we are. It's it's too predictable. That's what it is. Um too many people were saying this is, you know, they're going to miss their window, they're going to miss their window, and voila, it looks like they may have. And, you know, besides the fact that they have done this this similar thing before the Will Ponds, this is just the Will Ponds, all of our worst fears coming to fruition when considering, I mean, like I was saying this, even as I was watching it, watching this rebuild happen, I was still unsure whether the Wilpons would be able to sustain success. And when you have these types of years consistently after a couple amazing ones in a row, I mean, the the Mets didn't even give us a 2001, you know? They they didn't even give us that. They just went right from, from winning 87 games to losing 90. And now with... I mean, 20 and 39, the only thing I can think, you know, to make myself uh, take solace is, is the fact that the Astros of 2005, I believe, started out 15 and 30. So there are ways to bounce back, and people have done it before. But the way they have gotten to this point has exposed everything that we have been fearing about the Wilpons, that they're, that they're going to be as active as they think they they need to be in order to look good in the papers because that's all they seem to be concerned about other than the New York Post that they want to rip out of the out of the clubhouse. Um, it, it, it's, it's just it always comes back to the fact that this ownership is in over their heads. They're completely in over their heads, and it's too predictable what's going on right now. Outside of whatever Mickey Calloway is or isn't. It's it's just everything gets exposed all at once, and it's nobody's fault but theirs. I, I wrote, I think it was last week, that this team needs a a qualified team president of baseball operations in order to get the Wilpon's fingerprints off of the team. A team president of baseball operations who will, on one side, ensure that ownerships interests are not only met but satisfied you know to their liking and on the other hand this baseball uh, this president of baseball operations should be hiring the general manager and making sure that everything stays on the straight and narrow and all their resources are effectively uh you know utilized in their proper manners uh whether it's focusing on increasing the number of scouts increasing your location of dispersing your scouts, uh, upping the ante on, you know, signing bonuses after the, upon the draft, 
et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But let a, a, a qualified baseball man make these decisions because the Wilpons are far too reactionary, and every day is a new adventure for them, and everything's hinged on a budget, this, that, the other. Uh, and, and they're the ones who create this world of uncertainty. uncertainty. And, and as you say, Sam, all they do is just keep on selling hope and hoping that, you know, gets them by another season. Uh so, you know, let's discuss this folly. Here we are, and I made fun of it. Uh, east side, west side, everybody's going mad. Uh, Mets fans, the media, even the team itself, they're potentially talking rebuild again. And the trade, line, the trade deadline is topical already. And to me, that's just ponderous. So let's talk about the merits or the folly of actually blowing this team up. And Sam, as you posed the question, you know, to trade or not to trade these two aces, that is the question. So I'll let you start with that, Sam. You know, the talk of trading DeGrom and or Syndergaard. What? Good. Trading Jacob DeGrom could arguably be another Seaver all over again. And not yeah. in terms of the same kind of bitterness, just in terms of what he means. You lock this guy up, and, and mind you, he may want to be like, screw this, you know? I mean, like every single week, the Wiltons have not given him enough of a foundation to work off of. And he might not want to stay. But if I'm the Mets and I am the Wiltons, I mean, what kind of relationship do you think? They seem to have a good relationship with David Wright outside of Fred Wilpon, you know, blowing his mouth off. Uh, but generally speaking, it's like you wonder what kind of relationship they do have or should have. And you have to, you have to understand. It's just like, like when, I'm, when I'm thinking, like, I, I, I think back to, like, Gene Autry, and I, I, I don't, you know, I don't know exactly what kind of, of um, relationship. I, I might be ignorant in all of this, but just from, 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 you know, seeing it from afar, he seems beloved by that team. Um, Charlie Finley does not, but he see, they seem to rally themselves around hating on him because he was so bad. The Wilpons are so bland and, and, and don't go out of their way to take Jacob DeGrom to some salmon one night. I don't know. There's all these little things to know that, to, to show him that you care. And my guess is they don't have that kind of relationship with somebody like Jacob DeGrom, who is quite possibly the number one whether or not you trade him, he's the he's the, the the number one reason why you're either going to be successful or not going to be successful over the next however how long his contract is left, but however long you decide that he needs to be on the team. And I I I don't think it. Uh, and, and so so having gone on about Jacob Degrom, let me tell you, I think Noah Syndergaard's up for grabs. Um, right now, he's not even pitching. So, considering that he isn't even pitching, I wouldn't even be considering trading him this year either. So, but 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 the the biggest issue is that those two players 
would bring you back the biggest reward. Jacob DeGrom, obviously, uh, you don't trade him unless you were getting a Yankee-type haul from a couple of years ago. Uh, Noah Syndergaard is a completely different story, and um, not that I've given up on Noah, and that's far from it. I just think that when you're looking at who is more uh, expendable, Noah Syndergaard has to be more expendable than Jacob DeGrom, without question. Rich, before I throw it to you, uh, I remember it, you remember it. This does reek of Tom Seaver, but I'm just going to play contrarian here. Not that I actually mean this, but for the sake of our listeners, I'm going to play contrarian. 30 years old is right around the corner for Jacob DeGrom. Seaver was here, what, nine years, and he won three Cy Youngs and won a championship and two National League pennants. That's the contrarian part. You take it over from there, Rich. Well, you know, I hear what you're saying, Mike, and um, not that I mean it. <laughs> well, no, but I, I, but the thing is, you have to give up something to get something, right? And so, my concern is this: my concern with where the Mets are is that they're going to half-ass the situation, whichever way they go. So, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to say, look. We have to break it down. It's not working. Then go all in on that concept. Then, then bring back the, you know, the, player, the best players you possibly can while having something to build around. You know, bring those young players in to build around whoever you establish as your core. Don't, don't do this, okay? Don't trade Jerry's Familia at the deadline. Bring back a double-A pitcher and say that was it, right? Don't, don't do that crap. So if you're going to do this, go all in on it. Now, if go all in on it means DeGrom, you know, I could wrap my head around that concept as much as I don't want to. I could wrap my head around that for all the reasons you said. You're going to get a king's ransom for the guy. And you never know. With pitchers, you never know. I mean, DeGrom is, you know, one slider away from, you know, popping his his ulnar nerve, right? So um, you never know. And, And maybe that is what you do. You trade him while he's at the top of his value. You bring back a bunch of pieces, but but I would take this in a slightly different direction. I'm going to side with Sam here and say that I'd rather hold on to Cindergard and Degrom and say, okay, these are the pieces that we're going to build around, but everybody else is available. So here's what, here's think about this: if you're a contending team, you probably could use Seth Lugo. Right, Lugo has proven himself to be devastating out of the bullpen and also a very competent starter. Okay, that's an asset you can deal. Steven Matz, everybody's looking for a left-handed pitcher. And to teams that sense that their window is open, Steven Matz has value. You move on down the list. You know, Wheeler has certainly shown himself to be, um, you know, he's having a good year. He's had some good starts in a row. So there's another guy who, who might have some value on the market. You, you keep looking around this team, and who else do you have? Well, maybe if you have to, you know, in the right package, you, you, could move, you could move a Gesellman. I'm not saying move all these guys, but think about who has value that you could bring back a decent amount of prospects that you could not just cosmetically get younger, but really get younger, but yet hold on to your two pieces that you're building around. So that would be the, the tactic I would take. See, to me... You may have to get creative. Maybe there's a team out there that says, you know what, yeah, like like the Astros. We could kind of use Familia. We don't love them, but we can kind of use them. So maybe they take a, a Familia and maybe a Gesellman, and you get back you back a decent haul of prospects for them. 
or maybe you have to package two guys to a contending team, and you're bringing in, if you could bring back three or four young players, maybe somebody might be somebody actually on a major league roster, um, you, you bring back three or four guys, you have to trade something to get something, but my hope is you don't have to trade people named DeGrom and Syndergaard because those become your foundational pieces and you bring the young pieces in around them. So, but if, if my philosophy doesn't, doesn't hold and the only way to do this and significantly get younger and more athletic is DeGrom, then, then I think you have to think about it. But I, I would rather not. It's, it's just completely nuts to me that we're actually contemplating another rebuild. Uh, I asked you guys to come up with a list of five players as your untouchables. Uh, Sam, I'll get to you last. I'm going to let you catch up and, and, and think that out. My five, you know, really aren't a surprise. Nimmo, Conforto, Rosario. I'd like to keep the Grom, and maybe this might be the only surprise. I would, I would keep Lugo. Uh, I have guys that I would keep to move forward with, as you say, Rich, in an effort to get younger, more athletic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but at the same time, you say you got to give to get, but what is it that we're seeking and what are we going to receive? Because Cespedes isn't going anywhere. Frazier signs for another year or two. No, for another year. Bruce is signed for another two years. And those are going to be three guys that are going to be highly unmovable. So where are we going to fit incoming players unless these are highly targeted prospects who we can hide in the minor leagues for the time being? Uh, so, Rich, if you've already thought this out, what would be your top five untouchables? Well, you know, the, the team is already short on quality, young quality position players. So certainly Conforto and Nimmo are two of them, right? So you, you have to start there. Um, untouchable as far as I'm concerned, especially Conforto. Um, although he's, you know, hitting you know, what, 228, something like that. To me, that kid's going to win a batting title someday. I'm convinced of it. Okay, so Conforto and Nimmo. Um, Rosario, I want to say I, – I toyed with this one, Mike. We know when you asked us to think about this, I toyed with it. I'm not sure he's untouchable to me. Like, I think to me, if a team said, look, we have a couple of really great prospects, but we want Lugo and we want Rosario because we want your guy back, but we're going to give you two really good ones and then someone else on top of that, so a three for two, I'd have to think about moving Rosario in that scenario. If I get back a shortstop that that I think is a good prospect, I'd have to think about it. But anyway, so Nimmo, Conforto, and, and then here's the problem, right? The problem is that there aren't really five guys you want to say that they're unmovable, that, that they're untouchable. You know, I, I would say DeGrom, as much, as much as I, like I said earlier, I would move him if I were blown away and I had to, but I really, really don't want to. So I'm going to call him an untouchable for me. So Nimmo Conforto, DeGrom, I'm going to put Syndergaard in there too because he's under team control for, for I think, three more seasons after this one. And I just don't want to part with this guy. And then my fifth one, you know, I'm going to go with Gaselman. I'm going to go with Gaselman. I think Good Lugo's choice. better, but I'm going to go with Gaselman because I think I can get more for Lugo. So those are my five. I, I got to agree with you in this respect. I asked you guys for five players, and I struggled with the fifth guy, and that's the only reason why Rosario made the list. <laughs> so I have to agree with you, Rich. Uh, Sam, take it away. Top five. 
Well, I think you got to lock this Jose Reyes guy up long term. <laughs> anyway, I just wanted to, you know, uh, rustle some feathers. Definitely Jacob DeGrom and Noah Syndergaard. I think I've made that clear. Um, you I got you got to put Brandon Nimmo and Michael Conforto into there. And I'm going to round it out with Rosario. Um, you keep these young guys. Rosario is probably should still be in AAA, but I think it's time, and I appreciate that he's learning on the fly. And he's looked a lot better of late. Um, and, yeah, I think those – I like what you guys – I like the, the – I like what your points are for both Lugo and Gazelman. And I would maybe put him in there if I were removing Cindergard, saying go and get what you can out of Cindergard. Um, because Cindergard sometimes I wonder whether he's going to be able to to focus in that – that desire to always want to just throw it straight down the middle as fast as he can. Um, I, I, I do think he's a really good pitcher, but sometimes I just think he's, he overthrows a little bit. And I think that's where we're seeing some of these muscle issues. I, I've gone back. I'm going to digress a, a, a hot second. You know, I've talked about this before, how when I conceptualize Stephen Matz, I think of this skinny left-hander and yet he is as bulky as anybody on the team. So I, I, I think that it's, it's a major issue. But look at DeGrom. How, you know what? Come to think of it, and I've never really like exactly looked at DeGrom's arms, but DeGrom doesn't scream to me the, 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 the same when you see like Steven Matz is coming out of the weight room or, or Brandon Nimmo is, is uh, uh, holding a, a 20-pounder over his head. Uh, walking down like these guys are humongous but Jacob DeGrom one of the reasons probably why he's one of the best pitchers in baseball is he's this finesse guy he's he's he he is he he's just like one of those those tall lengthy guys that that he's a throwback Jacob DeGrom is a throwback and the Mets should not be getting rid of this guy ever as much as they can he 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 is that smile and and the way he pitches, you keep this guy because he is a proper representation of your ball club. It's the reason why it's one of the reasons why you kept David Wright around. You keep Jacob DeGrom around. All right. Well said. Uh you know let's step out of the ideal and how we think things should be and uh step into the practical and the pragmatic, I guess. Uh, what are you guys' thoughts on Mats and Wheeler? We, we, we've mentioned these two pitchers. Uh, we're more reliant on them uh, now more than ever. Uh, it's nice to have Wheeler around, uh, and maybe he is coming around. I keep on using that word. After two years of not pitching in the major leagues, he had last year and he's working this year. How do you think he's coming along, and how do you think Mats is coming along? Uh, Sam, good. Mats, and I mean. It seemed both him and Lugo got affected by Coors Field, and I'm going to brush these couples aside, couple games aside, uh, even though, you know, you have to play the games. It's how it goes, yada, yada, yada. Um, I, I, Mass is always going to be like, uh, you know, what's he going to do? What, what's what's Matt's going to do? I think he needs to get a hold of his, his emotions um, 
and it's hard, you know, it's hard for me to say that because I'm definitely somebody who needs to get a hold of his emotions. And, uh, you know, as a fellow Southpaw, I, I can see that he's extremely hard on himself to the point that he might not be focusing enough in a weird way because of how hard he, he is on himself. It's that, that look, you guys know exactly what look I'm talking about because you guys watch baseball, you guys watch these Met games as much as I do. And Steven Match just has this annoyed with himself look going on basically the entire time. Like he's just not satisfied with how ever anything is going. And, you know, it it can be strange, but also also endearing when you're you're shutting the the competition down. But at the same time, it really can can be a detriment when you're getting into moments that you got to calm your anxiety down. So I think with Matt's, that's he needs to keep keep uh, that under control. When you look at Wheeler, when you look at uh, Zach Wheeler, he's really kind of finally coming into his own and you see one a kid determined to finally you know have have uh, some sort of sense of uh, success he's got veteran presence already just because of the fact that even if he hasn't been able to to get it together and he hasn't had the chance to get it together on the major league field he's still able to to present that in some fashion and and you kind of see that veteran uh, 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 that 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 veteran brain starting to come around to his actual talent and his actual physical capabilities currently, and and that's one of the reasons why it's been really exciting to watch Wheeler, uh, because he's also been battling. He doesn't always have those those games where he's dominant. He's just looking really solid right now, and and um I'm hoping that he, it continues, and and hopefully he can just be that that forget about the the aces that number three starter we're hoping for you know we'll harvey's gone and matt's sometimes can't get out of his own way so zach wheeler is has been around here since 2011 now he's been in the organization since 2011 now and now is his time and and hopefully he's seeing that unfortunately you also have a mets team that is the weirdest worst team of all time um but but yeah, I, I think between those two guys, uh, um, you know, I'm really excited about what Wheeler's been doing. Mind you, until today, Matt's has been pitching really well, and I, I hope that continues as well. Uh, I agree. Uh, Matt's biggest problem is between his ears and and Wheeler. Rich, is he going to wind up failing, surprising us, or merely meeting expectations? What do you think, man? Well. I, I would like to be pleasantly surprised by Wheeler, but I, I'm going to settle for meeting expectations at this point because, like you said, Mike, he missed two full seasons, and that's a lot, you know. And so, and then last year, let's not forget, he comes back last year and they shut him down in July for the rest of the season. And um, so, you know what? You know, here's a guy. That. Yeah, I mean, the guy, the guy was shut down right. I, I believe it was right around Fourth of July. I think his last start was um, was the game Cabrera hit the home run on Cabrera bobblehead day against the Phillies in early July. So uh, then they just shut him down. So here's a guy who's missed two and a half seasons recently, and and you know to ask him to exceed our expectations or you know exceed the original expectations I think is a bit aggressive. Um, but if he could be like Sam just said, 
if Wheeler could be a third starter, you know, you can count on him for what, 14 and 10 in a given season, 12 and 10, something like that, third or fourth starter. That's fine, given where he is. And the question I would love to know is if Alderson is having conversations about trade, you know, potentially what the value of these guys are, what kind of value does Wheeler have to other teams? I mean, do contending teams look at him like, oh, we're not taking that guy. We're not giving you anything for that guy. He hasn't, he's missed two and a half seasons recently. Or do people see that, you know, he's throwing harder than he ever has before. Do people see the 98-mile-an-hour fastball and they take the other view and say, you know, Wheeler is, let's see, looking him up, Wheeler's 28 years old, but his arm's 25 with all the time he's missed. So do they say, wow, here's a guy who maybe is finally through his physical issues, throwing harder than ever before. We could get him on the very beginning of his upward trajectory. So I'd love to know how he's viewed throughout the league, you know, to to non-Mets personnel. Um, But with Wheeler, again, he's a swing man to me, and I don't mean in the rotation. What I mean is if they keep him, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with seeing if he could be my third starter behind DeGrom and Syndergaard. Like I said, I want to keep those guys. Or if they say that he has value throughout the league and people are willing to give you one or two good prospects for him, I'm okay with dealing him too. So I'm, I'm, um, I'm in swing mode with Wheeler. I feel good about him. Uh, I, I think other general managers have a very positive view of him at this point because of the potential involved. Not necessarily what he's done to this point, but because of the potential involved. And I think there are GMs out there who would be interested. What we get, what you know, or, or what we receive, that's questionable. But uh, I do think he can garner uh, more than just general interest. I think uh, specific teams might might very well call the mess up and, and ask and inquire what it would take to get him. Uh, at least I hope. Uh, let's continue with the starting rotation because. A, Jason Vargas has been terrible. And B, here we are with DeSelman and Lugo who can help in the starting rotation, but that ultimately leads us to the conversation regarding the bullpen. Where do we keep these guys? Where can they benefit us best? Uh, Because the bullpen, quite simply, has been terrible. Uh, There's no other way to put it. So, you know, Vargas, DeSelman, Lugo, let's revisit those two guys. Sam, take it away. Honestly, I am satisfied if all that comes from the Jason Vargas experiment is a photo of him looking like a beetle or or uh, uh, what's it called? Um, uh, Jeff Goldblum from Jurassic Park was another one that's, that people were uh, were comparing that. That's, that's it. And I'm not going to waste any more breath on Jason Vargas until he uh, gives me a reason to. No more breath. Excellent. Um, what do you think about Kesselman and Lugo? Uh, should they stay in? Oh, or, uh, where would you prefer them? In the rotation I, or in the bullpen? I, 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 that's the thing. The rotation needs to get their crap together. Uh, maybe there needs to be some enforcements from down below that just need to, to, to do what Seth Lugo and Robert Kesselman did two years ago, which has come out of nowhere. God, remember that and how awesome that was and what a great feeling. That was the last great Mets feeling, other than this eleven and one, which doesn't even count now. <laughs> like just like Seth Lugo and Robert Gazelman coming up, Gazelman coming in 
against the Cardinals. I know we're not on number 16, but my God. There, this, anyway, when, when it comes to Lugo and, and Gazelman, I think that might paralyze an already crippled bullpen. How do you how do you deal with with that? The only way you deal with it is that if if this is um uh, what was the guy's name that pitched today? Anybody is, is it Tim Peterson? Does that sound Tim familiar? Tim Peterson, yeah, yep, yep. He hasn't pitched badly, and he you know if these guys can come out and I forget who gave up the run. It might have been Rane. Uh, anybody at the end there who gave up that sixth run? It was. Uh, it was Seawald. Well, Seawald, Seawald has been a li- he he was was he just optioned recently? He was optioned Seawald after the game today. Yeah. He was optioned after the game. Yes. Well, you know, uh, I, I'm very impressed what Seawald has done up to this point. But if he's been faltering recently, you got to make some moves. Go go figure it out. I think the the Mets also are in a terrible position with the bullpen and Triple A currently. And this is the last year they're going to have to deal with it, and that is going to that is going to make a big difference, mind you. The Wilpons only pay twenty million dollars for that. I think something something low, very low for that team. But you got to give them credit where credit is due. That was an appropriate baseball move to make, and I'm sure Sandy Alderson had something to do with it. Um, so, so with, uh, the bullpen's going to look better next year. Uh, I have a feeling because of, I mean, look, look, look what they've had to do. How many times they've needed pitchers just because? Um, I, I, uh, I, I, I have thoughts that about this team that come in before I finish other thoughts, but they're very important thoughts that I have to interject with. Mickey Callaway has tried to implement this bullpen like a quote-unquote modern bullpen, like like Terry was dealing with it in the playoffs, like like uh, Joe Madden was dealing with it in the playoffs. But you don't yet have a playoff team. And, I you know, I have yet to uh, – I have not paid enough attention to really give you my full thoughts on the job Mickey Callaway has been doing. But what I can tell you is that nothing he has done recently – has changed the way the Mets have played other than a three-game winning streak. That gave us a little bit of hope for a second, but then they just haven't been able to handle their shit. So um, I think that there's a combination of why the bullpen's bad. I think Mickey got his, uh, 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 got his calf muscle wet too early when he should have just been putting his toe in there. Um, I think that that Vegas is really taking is 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 exposing at at the last second how detrimental it really is and really showing off why they made the move they made to get to Syracuse and the pitchers just suck. That's they they're just uh, pitching really poorly. When when Jerry Blevins is one of your worst pitchers out there, you know that you're uh, you're not having a good season. Yeah, don't hold back. Say what you feel, man. <laughs> Rich, uh, you know, what are we going to do about Jason Vargas? And, again, I forgot I, I, I forgot I said that, Sam. Thanks for reminding me. Gisellman and Lugo, you know, rotation bullpen, would that paralyze an already crippled bullpen? Uh, before you go there, uh, A.J. Ramos headed for surgery. 
And like we 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 noted, Paul Seawold has been optioned. Uh, so take it away. And ultimately, like I said, this ultimately leads to the bullpen. Well, Vargas. I mean, I I, I what can you say? I mean, so bad. It, there are no words to describe just how bad this guy is. And when you know he had one start where he had three runs over five innings, and people were lauding him as, oh my God. That was good. Well, no, it's not. It's not even a quality start. By that, that's an ERA of, you know, three runs over five is an ERA of, a, of close to five. So forget it. You know that that's not acceptable. And that was his best start of the season. He is so bad at this point that there are really no words to describe it. I mean, it's absolute batting practice every time he takes the mound, and you cannot run him out there anymore. You just cannot do that. It, it's I don't care if you're ten games under, ten games over, whatever it is you're embarrassing yourself when you're putting this guy out there. And so he has to go to the bullpen. Actually, what he has to do is he has to be gone, but we know that's not going to happen. So you throw him in the bullpen. You say, hey, Jerry, you have a lefty buddy now. You know, here's your lefty buddy. And we'll bring, we'll bring Vargas in, in the, to get one guy out in the fifth inning if there's a lefty coming up. And you know what? You spent your money poorly, so you deal with it. You, you, know, you, cannot, you, you don't solve that problem by running him out there every fifth day and absolutely embarrassing the organization. So that, that's what I feel about Vargas. Now, the rest of the bullpen is context, Mike, you know, because you've got Syndergaard coming back. I assume he's going to be back shortly after, like right around 4th of July. He, he's going to throw a simulated game. Maybe he's going to have one rehab start. So you're looking at roughly two weeks. Maybe he's back the weekend before the All-Star break, so when there's still one full week to go before the All-Star break. So maybe he comes back then. So now you've got a you've got Lugo, right? You probably keep Lugo in the rotation and then and then slide Vargas out and, and put him in the bullpen and, and you could rationalize it as we need a second lefty and everybody's gonna know why you do it, but to let him save some face, you say we just need a second lefty in the bullpen, so we're keeping Lugo in the rotation. But context comes in because this occurs let's say around July tenth or so, then you're close to the trading deadline and then Everything's going to matter. Do you move a Syndergaard? Do you move a DeGrom? Who do you move? And then you have to reshuffle the pieces. So whatever happens when Syndergaard comes back, it's only going to be like that for really two baseball weeks. You have the All-Star break week in there, too. So then context will figure itself out. Um, So my point is the pieces that are there now likely all won't be there after the trade deadline, and and you'll have to reshuffle the deck. But, But for now... Please, for the love of everything that's holy, never throw Vargas out there again to start a game, ever. It's, <laughs> I, I mean, honestly, Mike, you and I have been watching this game for a very, very, very long time. Have you ever seen anything this bad over half a season consistently, ever? Uh, I'm, just, I'm just trying to play good cop this show. Uh, but, no, I have to agree with you, man. That's pretty bad. That's pretty bad. And you know what? It, it kind of reminds me of Pete Falcone, doesn't it? But yeah, it does. It does. Falcone was was better, but you're right. That's the best analogy I can come up with. Uh, you, all right, stay with me, Rich. Would you trade Jerry Jerry Jerry's familiar? You have to. I mean, at this point, a closer on a bad team with an expiring contract, I, I think that's a given. And I think the problem is you're not going to get much, right? Because of all the injuries he's had, and um, he's been eh. This year so far, he hasn't been bad, he hasn't been great, and he's been hurt. So um, what you're going to get for a, for a Jerry Familia, 
double-A pitcher, you know, something like that, maybe. that That's probably what you're going to get. But that's what teams do. You know, they trade their closers in years that, that closers are in the walk year, and and they're not going to re-sign him. So assuming Gaselman's still on the squad, I have no problem with Gaselman, Gaselman becoming the interim closer for the rest of the Sam, season. How you, I really don't. Sam, how do you feel about Familia? Hey, guys, remember that time that the Mets were going to win the World Series, but Juris <laughs> Familia decided to throw two quick pitches in a row? That's how I feel about it at this point. I'm I, – I'm ready to move on. I'm I'm just like, listen, uh, it, it, it's literally the only moment of the three blown saves that I I blame Jarrett's Familia for is the Alex Gordon Gordon situation. Um, but at this point, you have to say that the fact that he he was every. He was everything the Mets fan had been looking for in a closer until he quick pitched Alex Gordon twice. That he literally was. We were like, this is great. We never, other than the Padres game, we never experienced such smoothness. The Padres game was literally all season the only hiccup uh, Jerry's Familia ever had until the World Series. And. And since then, now mind you, in 2016 he broke, a, a, you know, he set a crazy record for uh, uh, saves in a season for the Mets. But I, I think that at this point, unfortunately, we are looking at at how you need to salvage the situation. You could not keep this team together. You could not do. Unfortunately, Sandy Alderson, and we still don't completely know how his farm system is going to play out. Um, I think he he lost a lot when he lost Paul DePodista, and we're seeing uh, him reaping the benefits with Brandon Nimmo right now. But you you can see that the 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 foundation that I wanted Sandy Alderson to to create with this ball club. Unfortunately, he was the same type of bland general manager that was, you know, as is Sandy Alderson to GMing, the Wilpons are to owning. Extremely bland, underwhelming, and disappointing. And and um, Sandy has had some great moments, and I still have hope that, that that whole idea of not worrying about the back pages, just taking a look at... at, at how you can build a foundation that had never been built in 55 years here, how you can do that with this franchise. I think he was kind of able to do it, but it, you know what? It, 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 he's the type of bland GM that they want, but at the same time he was, he, he was held back because of the Wilpons in many, many ways. He wasn't as creative as we hoped he would be, like he was back in the day, but it was a different game when he was uh, GM and won one World Series with the uh, the Oakland Athletics. It was a different game, but I, I think at this point nobody has yet. You know, everybody's talking about how they're going to approach it, but I guess Sandy's still on one year, a one year deal. So we're not even going to be talking about that until uh, until afterwards. But 
I don't even remember what you asked me, Mike. What, what, where did I? Where, where did we start here? I had so it's much to right, say about everything. The question would have came up anyway, uh, but that's why I believe this team needs a president of baseball operations. We need a buffer between ownership and the general manager. You know, oh, right. It was familiar, familiar, familiar. But you know what? Enough with the pitching, because we we mentioned Brandon Nimmo, and we need to speak about him. Let's talk about the offense for a second. Uh, the team has no 300 hitter. How about how about that? Anyway, uh, Nimmo and Cabrera lead, or they're tied for the lead. Uh, team lead with 12 home runs apiece. Now, Brandon Nimmo, there's been a lot of talk about him uh, being written in for the All-Star game. How do you feel about that? And how do you feel about Brandon Nimmo in general? I mean, he's been superb as far as I'm concerned. I love his attitude. I don't care what people are saying about him. I like the way he plays. I like the way he hustles. Uh, I like what he's doing. And I want him around for a long time because I think he can be even better. Good, Sam. If there's anybody else that you need to lock up to a long-term contract, it's Brandon Nimmo. I think, like you just said, his attitude, his perseverance, as well as the numbers he's putting up, he might not put up these type of numbers all the time, but they, we, we, we always say, oh, you know, he's probably just going to be a fourth outfielder. You have to remember what they thought he could be when they drafted him. And right now he's living up to that potential. And hopefully he can continue to do that. I think he's a hard worker. I think he he is determined to somehow figure out how to be a productive major leaguer. And that in and of itself may just lead to an all-star player out in the outfield that you cannot get out of this lineup. I think you probably, if I, if honestly – if Sandy Alderson is as giddy about Brandon Nimmo as he seemed to be in the off season, we'll lock him up to a six-year deal and let's call this, you know, free up two years or whatever it is. Let's do this. That's how I feel about Brandon Nimmo. Paul DePodesta, uh drafted him when he was still here. Uh, is he an all-star, Rich? Well, um, Probably not. I mean, he. I, I look. I love Brandon Nimmo, but if you look at his numbers across the board, and he, he barely has enough plate appearances to qualify, two eighty four, twelve home runs, twenty four RBIs. I mean, he's borderline. Um, but the problem I think that the Mets are going to face with him being an All Star is that every team has to have one. Right? Clearly, Degrom is going to be one of those guys. So. Outfield's tough. You know, there are a lot of – he will have a lot of competition to make the team, even as a backup. And um, I would love nothing more than to have Nimmo on the all-star team. Believe me, if you could if you could be a standout on this team with where this team is and still smile every day and still perform well, you deserve to be an all-star. So hopefully he can be, but I think what what will work against him is that, you know, there are outfielders who won't be among the starting three who have – who are having good years as well. And Nimmo's 284, 12 home runs are very good on this team, but they might not be enough to get him on the all-star team as a backup. I hope they are. And probably, like I said, if the Mets did not have DeGrom and they had to have one representative, clearly it would be Nimmo. But the Mets will have their representative in DeGrom. So DeGrom might be his biggest obstacle to getting to the all-star team. There's something else I wanted to throw out there. Cabrera has 41 RBIs. That ranks 16th in the National League. Now, dig this. 
13 of the top 16 National League leaders in RBIs are infielders. How the times have changed, huh, Rich? They really have. They really, really have. You know, Mike, they were talking about this uh, last week, the Mets playing the Braves, when the Braves had the three guys hitting 40 home runs and two of them were infielders, Darrell Evans and Davey Johnson. And I remember back then that it was so weird, right, because these got two infielders hitting 40 home runs. First of all, hitting 40 home runs was, was a feat in and of itself. And then having it be done by an infielder, wow. And having it done by two infielders on the same team, a same that didn't make the playoffs, by the way, um, that was really a standout. So, yeah, it, it is weird to see that, that so much offense is coming from infielders these days. Sam, I'm going to let you rant on the Wilpons a little bit more. You're feeling feisty. Isn't this our kind of shit luck? Cabrera has 41 RBIs, and we ran and raved that the Mets are collecting old bodies all over again. And here he is putting up this kind of season just as he did last season. And when we signed him, general managers across the landscape of baseball were saying this guy's best days were behind him. You know, so this only perhaps just enables the Wilpons to continue to operate the way they do. What do you think of that? I mean, there's plenty of, of other, uh, you know, there's at least five to six to one, <laughs> four or five or six to one of, of you know, except they've never, they've always ignored. I mean, they're going to have excuses, excuses, excuses. We're going to hear it, and whatever. As Chival Cabrera needs to be put in the Mets Hall of Fame immediately. Uh, he... <laughs> No, I, I love I love Estrella Cabrera so much. Um, he he's just he's he's complete. Like we were talking about, oh, they're just gonna do Estrella Cabrera in like what 2010, 2011, as if it was a bad thing. And now I'm like, why hasn't this guy been on the team for the last six years? We probably would have had less of a of a reason to sell off in 2011. And who knows what could have happened? No, maybe I'm just, it's, you know, uh, revisionist history, as they say. Uh, but as Dribble Cabrera, like, why haven't we kept this guy? I mean, like, we could have had him when he wasn't just aching all over, but playing through every single ache and pain for three seasons straight, putting up awesome numbers that just make us marvel at his awesomeness to the point that we want at least the bobblehead to make it to the Hall of Fame uh, in, in in Miami. Uh, it, it, I love Estrella Cabrera, and I really hope the Mets can get it together so he can be a World Series hero for us. Oh, perhaps. Perhaps one day. Let me paint this scenario for you guys. Uh, as the deadline, the trade deadline approaches, the Mets still have three outstanding key injuries to Cespedes, Thor, and Jay Bruce. What's the likelihood that this front office tells us, the fans, well, getting them back is like making a transaction, and Bruce isn't going to be this bad forever. What's the likelihood of that, Rich? Uh, I, I think it's, it's fairly unlikely, Mike, for the following reason. I, I think that that would almost mean that they're in buy mode, but we're not going to buy. So we're in buy mode, but we're not going to buy because we're getting these three guys back. And you know, they've all been all-stars, I think. You know, uh, Thor hasn't, but um, and so... Just make Omar the GM then. Just fire us in and make Omar the GM so we hear the same thing about the cavalry coming back. 
Well, there you go. There you go. But so to me, that would almost be like, well, we think we're in it, but we're going to bank on this. I actually think you're going to see them sell. So that being the case, I think what you'll see is that they are going to sell. I don't know. I, I, well, I'm, I'd almost ask you the question back, what you actually think they're going to do. Because, again, my biggest concern is that they sell off Familia. They sell off, you know, a Blevins to a – even though what kind of value does he have, right? Uh, you sell off a Blevins to a team that needs a situational lefty. You get back two double-A pitchers. You say, you you know, you did the right thing, but you're left with the same pile of shit. You know what I mean? And um, – that's my concern is that they half-ass this. But, no, I, I know what you mean. It would be so messy in to not do anything and say we're getting these guys back. But I do think they're going to be in sell mode, so I don't think that will happen. What say you, Sam? I just wanted to randomly say that Matt Harvey finished his uh, 2018 Mets career uh, with a two eighty six batting average. I just I just uh, randomly saw that on the page. I just, just wanted to let you know. He almost hit 300 as a 2018 New York Mets. Um, I think that basically sums up what we're dealing with here. Uh, I am looking, I am randomly seeing Matt Harvey's name on the roster in the batting part of, uh, of the bat, uh, baseball reference page as I'm trying to sort through this mess and figure out exactly how we've gotten here. Kevin Plavecki has a 3.55 on base percentage. Take of that what you will. He also only has 13 hits in 62 at bat. Uh, Take what that you will. Um, Jose Reyes has a one. uh, one, I don't know how updated this is. He has a 169 batting average. He was at 176, and I thought to myself when I saw that before. I guess he grounded out or something. I thought to myself, oh, he's almost to 200. Um, Louis Gorme has gone all the way down to 185, which makes uh, perfect sense. He has uh, 10 hits and 54 at-bats, but I'd rather him be getting the opportunities over uh, Jose Reyes. The thing about it is Jose Reyes is complaining about uh, playing time. I I have heard this uh, uh, randomly from, from somebody, but um, I have thought about it, and you guys can can go with this what you what you will. Um, I I had thought, uh, Rich, that if Jose Reyes were a starter, he would be playing better. But should it really matter? Uh, that that you know, should, like, shouldn't he be able to adapt as a baseball player? But I still think that had he get, been given more opportunity, weirdly enough, he he would be playing better. Rich, go ahead, well, because where I, if I was in charge, he wouldn't be a Met. That's my answer, so take it away, Rich. Yeah, no, absolutely. I totally I totally agree with that that part, but, like, I, I still, like, the, there's, there's a part of me that just goes, Jose Reyes performs really well when he's playing baseball. Well, it's a catch-22, because where you, you've got Cabrera, who is your your best offensive player all around this year uh, at the moment. He, he and Nimmo, as, as we talked about earlier. So you can't sit Cabrera. Rosario, you feel, is part of your future, so he has to play. You're paying Frazier $17 million, so he's got to play third, and Reyes can't play first. There's nowhere for Reyes to play. Um, so philosophically, I'm okay with a 35-year-old guy who accepts his role as a utility player doing that. The problem is 
he sucks at that job. He does. He just does. And you're right, Sam. He would, if Reyes were getting more regular playing time, he would probably be two thirty ish. That's probably what he is at this point. Two thirty, two forty. He'll steal you some bases, that kind of thing. But the problem is, where where are you going to get him the extra playing time? You know, you're not going to sit Cabrera. You're not going to sit Frazier. You're not going to sit Rosario. So, and then Reyes isn't very good at the role he was hired to do. You can't change the role like we just talked about. Um, so you've really got a quandary on your hands. You know, you've, you've got a problem. And, and yeah, he, he doesn't really like the role. In the, in the past week or two, he's been saying that he needs more playing time to perform better. So you want to talk about a classic rock in a hard place. You know, on paper, it makes sense. You always want your veterans to be your backups, right? The 35-year-old guy who's happy just to be on the team, he'll do what you ask him to do, great. But Reyes isn't really fully accepting of the role, and he's not good at it. So, uh, Mike, I know you just said that he wouldn't be on the team. Okay, but you know what? I have to go with Sandy on this one. Who, who's your alternative? Yeah, I, <laughs> uh, you're right. I mean, we have no alternative. I, I agree with that. Uh, I'm just a been there, done that type of guy, and I'll just take it back to day one. You know, he wouldn't have returned to this team because I'm just that type of guy. I'd rather give that position or, or role to somebody else, another kid, give somebody else a shot. That's all I'm saying. It's nothing personal, really. Uh, look, as a matter of fact, if and when T.J. Rivera returns this summer, I'm willing to transition right then and there. Uh, but you know what? Enough with the Mets. Let's uh, jump into DeLorean and, and have a little fun with Mets history. Let's uh, transition to uh, uniform number 12 in honor of our 12th episode of the Metsian podcast. Uh, Sam, do you have a list available to you? I know you're on location. Well, I am on location in Denver, uh, of course. Right. And uh, I did just – I went to two games in a row, which was lovely. The last time I went to two games in a row, the Mets won both in extra innings. And Frank Francisco closed both. Hey! But uh, here I am. Uh, and unfortunately, I have now evened up my record at Coors Field at two and two. Uh, uh, six years later now, um, I am getting the ultimate Mets database uniform numbers up, presented by John Springer of Mets by the Numbers. We All right, I wasn't well. I would. I wasn't sure. I would have went to the list for you. That's why I asked. So. Uh, Oh, We're all looking at the list, so let's just uh, pick John a few Stearns, names as done. we will. John Stearns. It's all John Stearns. Stearns. He's got it. I don't disagree. He's my favorite player on this list. And I went all the way to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, when he was their manager just to get his autograph in my 1979 yearbook. Uh, and that was just a couple of years ago when he was managing. Uh, maybe eight years ago at this point. But I, I went there specifically for that. Let's go through another couple of names. Some familiar, some not. Uh, Sammy Drake, Choo Choo Coleman. That's a familiar name. Jesse Gondry, Cleon Jones. Uh, skip some. Tommy Davis, that should be a familiar name. Ken Boswell, Jack Heidman, Lee Mazzilli. He wore number 12 in his rookie year and then switched over to 16. John Stearns, the aforementioned. Ron Darling, Keith Hughes, Willie Randolph, Jeff Kent. Uh... Bad attitude, but perhaps maybe one that got away, because even with the Mets, man, he still put up 65 RBIs, which was something for a second baseman back in that day. Uh, Alvaro Espinosa, former Yankee. Sean Gilbert, 
Jorge Fabregas, uh, Sean Dunstan, Brooklyn Bourne, woo Roberto Alomar, Daniel Garcia, Jeff Francoeur, Joaquin Arias, Scott Hairston, and Juan Lagares. Rich, what do you say? Wow. Um, you know, list, right? I've been thinking a lot about Lagares lately, and he's not my favorite number 12, of course, but um, – but the team has such a dearth of outfielders that you wonder, you know, how nice it would be to have Lagaris on the team. But moving past that, um, you know, John Stearns, the other night during the rain delay, I put on, um, I put on SNY, and it was a yearbook 1978 show. And you saw John Stearns on there, and they talked about all My of the favorite. stolen bases. What's that, Sam? I just said that's my favorite. What the the, um, the the yearbook show? The yearbook, the, the '78 specifically. Oh wow! So '78, you know, you, you, John Stearns is on there, and they talked about how he had all those stolen bases as a catcher. Um, so, and he talk about the ultimate and gritty player. So there's Stearns. Uh, you know, we can't forget the fact that Ronnie Darling wore number twelve, right? And I'm in the process of reading his book right now. Um, triumph and, and failure in, in the biggest game of his life, and the process of that so far so good. Um, and then also, you know, Mike, I'm not sure how far you go back with this, but but Kenny Boswell, you know, what about Kenny Boswell? Remember Kenny Boswell? And um, vaguely, vaguely. To be honest with you, I was a young kid, but vaguely. And through my aunt, she kept me abreast of those '73 and '74 Mets. So Ken Boswell was your was just a classic Met. You know, he wasn't great. He was an average player, but he would hit the occasional home run. And um, and so, yeah, so Kenny Boswell is one that stands out. Ligaris I've been sort of waxing poetic about lately with the dearth of outfielders. You know, Ronnie Darling. And then, um, you know, Sean Dunstan, um, he obviously was a Met for a very, very short period of time, did most of his damage as a Cub. But you remember the Grand Slam single game, right? Um, if you remember, I believe Dunstan got that inning started with a walk. In fact, I'm sure he did. Um, Mets were down a run to the Braves, but looking at elimination from the playoffs and extra innings. And that inning got started when Dunstan walked. So, um, and I always liked Dunstan as a Cub, and I was thrilled when the Mets got him, even though he was at the end of his career. So, so those are my number 12s. Uh, Lee Mazzilli was hot. In 1976, the way he came up, uh, and he only wore that number 12 for that one season. Then he moved on, like I said. But man, was he hot when he came up! Uh, and then they just wrecked that team. <laughs> uh, Sam, any other names stand out to you? Oh, 1976. That sounds familiar. <laughs> That's what I love about the the DeLorean we go back on, and, and very similar to the movie we're referencing, that the themes will always be the same, uh, even if they're slightly different. Uh, with number 12, when you're looking at this, what's interesting is that Cleon Jones was there for a hot second in 1965, but eventually you will remember him in the reverse of 12, which is, of course, 21, Uh yeah, so Cleon Jones here is an uh, interesting little uh, yin-yang. Um, Ken Boswell, he did uh, win the uh, a ring in number 12. Um, Lee Mazzilli, you got to say, it's interesting to see him on the list. Like 1976, we were just uh, talking about. That's 
that just brings up uh, 1976 is an interesting one because it has uh, Dave Kingman actually being nice to children, which apparently he wasn't always. <laughs> so when I see 1976, and uh, you guys were talking about a Mets yearbook, I think about that one, and and uh, I've heard stories, and that it was funny that they had him in, in a good light. John Stearns, I want his 1978. Snow White pinstripe pullover. I want that somehow, some way. I have to find that jersey one day. I ha- you have to give this to Ron Darling because uh, he was number 12 from 1985 to 1989. He won a World Series and arguably the best World Series. Day. you got to get that first one out of the way, sure, sure. But the 86 basically culminated with what 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 86 did was culminate what you thought a Mets team could be and what they basically strived to have when they thought of the team in the first place and that's why 1986 New York Mets will always be until proven otherwise with a new World Series team I believe. Now, you'll have a lot of old-timers argue with me on this one because you got to get that first out of the way. But that first was a, a, a – not necessarily I, – I, I know considering you guys went through it, not necessarily a flash in the pan, but it was that miracle that, that the pitching got it done and you got timely hitting where it counted in 1969. The 1986 team, even though they needed a miracle to to get it done, still uh, dominated. And that is what you wanted a New York National League team, just like those Brooklyn teams of, of old and some of those Giants teams of old did. That was the 1986 New York Mets. And to an extent, at, at some points, the 1999 team, um, even though they unfortunately weren't able to get it done, they kind of mixed a lot of both. That's what's so interesting about the 1999 team is that they mixed a lot of both, that dominating force on both the offense and the pitching that, that it could be, but at the same time kind of being a scrappy ball club with some, some uh, up-and-comers as well. Uh, anyway, I just went on a crazy tangent just coming to Ron Darling. Uh, name Willie Randolph. I just have to say, also, Mike, he's also Brooklyn born, correct? Willie Randolph is indeed Brooklyn born. Yeah, he went to Tilden High School. All right, definitely, definitely have to uh, throw there. I love that John Stern's name is on here twice. He was uh, on there in 2000. Uh, where, where, where was he in 2000 for the pennant winner? No, as a coach. Where was he as a coach? On the 2000 team, he was, in, he was a Mets coach. No, I know. What what, what kind of coach? Uh, he was, oh. He was a base coach, Rich? Or a yeah, bench coach? I think coach? he was the bench coach. Yeah, he might have been the bench coach. Yeah. Uh, okay. Okay. Oh, man. Part of me just, I like, thinks John Stearns would be a perfect manager for anything right now. <laughs> anyway. Roberto Alomar. I'm not sure if you guys did mention Roberto Alomar when this uh, got started, but that is definitely probably the most infamous on this list. Would you Would you say, Mike? I just suddenly he forgot how to play baseball. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. Because the year before was uh, pretty good. I don't know what happened. You know, 
Steve Phillips got that one wrong, just like he did move on, I Some guess. People I don't know what to say. Don't take. Some people you just know? don't take. I don't know. All uh, right. You did make mention of teams. I think Jeff Rancor is an interesting one. I like I like Jeff Rancor. Uh, he just seemed like a fun guy. <laughs> you know, even if he didn't eventually get it done like he really wanted him to, uh, he was he was kind of cool for a hot second on some really bad teams. Uh, Scott Harrison, you know, hit 20 home runs for the 2012 team, and we'll obviously talk about the 2012 team soon. Um, and Juan Lagares. It, it's just, it's really unfortunate because he's just, he's such a marvel. He's just an absolute marvel. He's, he's an injured marvel at the, at the moment. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and you mentioned a couple of the old-time teams. Let's get to that before we get to our final word. Uh, 1912, the Brooklyn Dodgers were rather unremarkable. Uh, Zach Wheat was on the team, uh, but they posted a 58-95 record and were seventh in the National League. Uh, what do you got to say about the 1912 Dodgers? I got a tidbit, too. Well, you know, the 1912 Dodgers, I don't have them up yet, um, but right. they were the last in in prospect, uh, uh, Park Slope, excuse me, Prospect Park Slope is, you know, if you really wanted to call it its full name, if anybody ever would have named it that. But, um, that's what it does. That's that's what it slopes to. Uh, the the uh, obviously I'm stalling as I get up the Brooklyn uh, well, uh, get this, uh, this page week. up. But the thing the thing about what was that? I I jumped the gun last week and you rightfully corrected me that now that we're in 1912, yes. this yes. is finally their last year at Washington Park before moving into Ebbets Field in 1913. Uh, so yeah, I they were the only gun. six. Good they were only six of eight. They were only six of eight in attendance this year in the National League, two hundred forty-three thousand. And we will obviously see uh, how they followed that up with a much bigger uh, concrete and steel ballpark in Ebbets Field. And we will, we will, uh, you know, no, no spoilers here. We'll, we'll, we'll save that one for uh, number thirteen. Uh, but you know, fifty-eight ninety-five, finishing seventh. That must have actually been joyful for some of the Brooklyn folk there. And they weren't last place this year. Um, let's see. Did, was, was Casey on this team or was he didn't come up till, uh, there he is. So Casey Stengel, age 21 at 17 21. games with a 316 batting average and a 466 on base percentage. What I love about what we are doing here is that we are bringing New York baseball together. We are a full-service podcast. We got Casey Stengel starting, starting his New York lore. What are the dogs barking about? My God, guys, calm down. Um, anyway, he slugged 386, which was, was not exactly what you would expect. But, hey, it's 1912. That was probably pretty good. One home run, 13 RBIs, and 73 plate appearances. That's really what I take from this season is that, and my guess is that was a September call-up. I guess we'd have to go to the ultimate Brooklyn Dodgers database and look up those numbers to find out exactly how that stuck out, uh, when he, what he wore in 2012, in 2012, 1912. But the only thing, Mike, that I can take from this one is uh, Casey Stengel, for sure. 
Well, uh, I got I got some sad news because I don't know when it happened, but New York City Park removed uh, the only sign that they had in Washington Park that was affixed beside the old stone house that indicated the Dodgers ever played there. And I passed by there today, and I didn't see it, and I'm furious about it. Uh, it's just pathetic. That's not good. Uh, how the city just ignores its history, its baseball history, I should say. Rich, anything on the 1912 Dodgers that you'd like to include? No, I, I, I'm not as close to it as you guys. Um, I was poking around the Yankee statistics a little bit, or the Highlanders, so we'll, if we get to that. But uh, but on the yeah. Dodgers, I'm good. We're done with the Dodgers. Hit us with the Yankees, babe. So, you know, you look at some of these names. It's obviously pre-Ruth, you know, and, and you look at these guys and, and you look at the record they put up. So, um the Yankees were 56 and 96 in 2000, and I'm sorry, in 1912. So um, the Highlanders were 56 and 96. Could you imagine how that would go over today if the New York Yankees were oh 40 games under 500, we're right? We're reveling in, in numbers like that. We would, right. The Yankee fans would go nuts, but, but we would go, we would absolutely revel. So as I scan down the list, you know, there aren't a lot of names that are in any way familiar to me. Um, it's interesting how this is just, you know, this is just before the, the Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig years. It's, it's just before that. These names are not well known. The one name that I that I find very funny is Hippo Vaughn. Um, Hippo Vaughn was a right-handed pitcher who was 2-8. and eight. Um, so, uh, you know, I assume he was a portly fellow with a name like Hippo Vaughn. Um, and as I look at this, you know, um, their manager was, let's see, who was their manager? Uh, their, well, their attendance, let's start with that. At Hilltop Park, they drew 242,000 fans. So that, um, that that's unfathomable as well. You know, that 242,000 over 71 home games. Um, I'm sorry, 70, 76 home games it would have been, 77. 77 home games, 242,000. So you're talking about averaging roughly, if my math is correct, not even 5,000 a game, right? Seven times five, thirty-five. 35. So uh, uh, Rich, unbelievable. Rich, I, I need to, I need to uh, intersect here. You said the record was 56.96, but it looks like you were reading the Pythagorean win Oh, loss. you're right. 50 and 102, they were actually worse. <laughs> yes. yes. And it's so, you know, it's really amazing, like, looking at the Yankee logo next to record 50-102. I'm like, oh, please, can we can we zoom in on this so they don't see the 1912 part? <laughs> wow. Wow. I would <laughs> – hey, they sucked, too, at one point, right? So it's not only the yeah. Mets. Hey. Um, they uh, – and again, none of these names are familiar to me. I, what I find most interesting is again that they played at Highland Park, uh, Hilltop Park. I'm sorry, Hilltop Park uh, and Polo Grounds. So interesting. How did they figure that one out? They played some of their games at Hilltop Park and some at the Polo Grounds. Um, I find that fascinating. Actually, I'd like to know what the breakdown was and, and why they did that. Why they played in two different places. Uh, uh, and so you apart. I don't see that much. They weren't far apart, weren't they? On opposite sides of the river? Uh, no, they were within a mile. Just the bridge. They're basically they're 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 within like they a twenty-minute walking. They're they're yeah, right they over were, the bridge. I don't know how long that uh, bridge has been there, though. Uh, the the McCombs Bridge. 
Well, anyway, it, yeah. it was the last season of Hilltop Park, and the Yankees moved in officially into the Polo Grounds in 1913. And by this time, uh, the Highlanders, we should say, they were only in their 10th season of operation. How about that? Mm. Uh, one New York more. Giants. The New York Giants, uh, you know, John McGraw's empire. They were 103-48 and 48 and came in first place in the National League. <laughs> but they lost their second straight World Series, this time to the Boston Red Sox. Sam, McGraw's it's empire. Funny, it's funny talking about them right now because they were at the top of their game at the time. Yeah. Back-to-back World Series losses, Rich. Well, you could look at it this way. At least they won the National League two years in a row, right? Um, okay. So you could say that. But, yeah, it's it's interesting how, of the three teams, the Giants were clearly, you know, head and shoulders above the other two. So if you were a New York baseball fan then, um, you heard, I'm sure if you were a Dodger fan, you caught a lot of crap because, you know, your National League counterparts were, were so much better. And the Hill, and the uh, the Highlanders were just not even a factor. So if you were a fan of New York baseball in 1912, you were doing well if you consider your, considered yourself a fan of the of the Giants. Some people might point to the 50s, but this is truly, truly when the Giants, John McGraw, and the Polo Browns were in their heyday. That's all I'm going to say about that. Let's move on to our final word. Uh, Sam. I love how you just completely forgot about 2012. The Mets? Oh, well, okay. Go there. <laughs> well, it's Johan Santana. <laughs> Go there. All right. Well, 2012 might be my second favorite Mets season of my personal fandom uh, since 2005. Um it was just – I went to a lot of games early. Um, it, I think this season really culminated. It had its peak when they walked off on Jonathan Papelbon on July 5th. R.A. Dickey didn't perform all that well, but they were right behind. I think there were five, the, the Phillies were leading 5-4 to four late. They had taken over late. And there was just a bunch of walks. Duda was involved. Murphy was involved. Uh, Wright was involved with the last hit uh, that that Hunter Pence couldn't get to. Um, there were there were a lot of good vibes of that season, even though they collapsed. You know, uh, they they you know it was still on the second year of uh, what was considered a rebuild, and everybody was kind of accepting, even though we were pissed off in some fashion. But you still had R. A. Dickey. Uh, uh, winning the Cy Young, he will forever be one of one of the all-time favorite Mets uh, of myself and and uh, many people. Uh, and so I think 2012, when you, you know looking back on on this entire era, uh, you got to say is not the worst. <laughs> what do you think about that, Rich? Well, 2012 was the first year of the rebuild, right? So 2011, they stripped it down with K-Rod going and Beltran going and not re-signing Reyes. And and you knew it was going to be a grind. And, you know, like Sam said, you had a couple of things to smile about. You had the nice start, which was good. They were overachieving expectations until about the All-Star break. And then if you remember, right after the All-Star break, they went in, I think they lost every game in a homestand. I think they were 0-10 on a homestand. Um, something like that. And um, 
and then and then right after that, in very late July, is when Matt Harvey made his debut. So you had that. You had a glimpse of the future with Matt Harvey coming up. You had the hot start. You had the Santana no hitter. You had the Dick, Dickey winning the uh, the Cy Young Award. Um, so it was the beginning of what we knew were going to be some rough times. We had a few smiles along the way, probably more than we had a right to expect. Um, and that's what I think about when I think about 2012. That, that's really what I think about. Well said, because I was in all in on the rebuild and what we got, you know, here and there, I, I was pleasantly support, surprised with. Uh, well said. Uh, final words, Sam. Hope. You know, it just it always goes back to hope. You got to believe. What else can you say? Okay. Rich? My last word would be um, persevere, and I think that's what we're going to have to do. Um, it's going to be a rough go the rest of the way because no, nobody – some people are a little bit more uh, accepting of a rebuild, but it's tough to accept, you know, when you start to see your guys go. And we're just going to have to persevere throughout the rest of this season and um, enjoy what we can. There will be some, you know, good moments when they win some games, but it's probably going to be a slog the rest of the way. And uh, that's kind of where we are. My word is dumbfounded. I have no idea where this organization is headed. I really don't. I don't know who's going to be in charge of it. Uh, and on the same note, I'm terrified who might wind up in charge of this whole operation. Uh, so <laughs> I'll just end it with that. You know, I tried playing Mr. Nice Guy, but that's my, that's my final word. And on that note, uh, gentlemen, thank you for uh, a, a well, well thought out conversation. Uh, and good night, and let's go Mets. Keep it short and simple. Let's go Mets. Mets. All right. I'm glad to get a couple of games under my belt. <laughs> good. Later, guys. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> 